Hi, everyone. This is Ethan Chumley from Microsoft's Democracy Forward program, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 249 for December 6th, 2021. And I was afraid we might not be able to get an interview set up for this week, but... At the last minute, we did. And again, I'm just kind of shuffling a lot of these things, you know, during the holiday season. People are busy. It's hard to get people scheduled. But as it turns out, we're actually going to have a couple interviews in a row. Anyway, today we have a really interesting and important interview with Ethan Chumley from Microsoft. And their group at Microsoft uh, is called Democracy Forward. And they are working to help secure... Uh, our elections in many different ways. Now, today we're going to talk about uh, a few things, but we're going to kind of focus on one system that they are putting together called Election Guard. And it's an open source software project that's free for anybody to use. And uh, it basically makes sure that our elections and votes are counted properly and everything is is secure. And, and honestly, the most important part of this really is the, the open source part because it's now transparent. And we talked about this with Harry Hursty. And by the way, if you have not listened to that interview yet, that's a great companion piece to this one, maybe even prior to, prior to listening to this one, because we you know, go, kind of go through in painstaking detail from a security point of view, why so many of our election systems are not secure. And the real problem with that is that it's really hard to verify because these are proprietary closed systems. So Microsoft has stepped up to the plate and they are doing some great work here. So we are going to be talking shortly with Ethan Chumley about that couple quick things before we start. I told you last week about how my debit card was hacked using, of all things, brute force techniques, which is something you really don't think about with credit cards, but apparently it's a thing. And I just ran across a really interesting article about this. Uh, there's a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Basically, someone saying the same thing I did, which was, you know, when you can start guessing these numbers and using it to drain people's bank accounts, that's an argument against using debit cards at all. So anyway, you might want to check that out. There's a link in the show notes. I also put a link to it in the blog article that's on my website uh, if you just want to go there. And then uh, stay tuned. After the interview, I've got a couple of really fun and interesting announcements you're going to want to hear about some things I'm going to be doing here uh, later on in the month of December. But okay, let's get right to our interview with Ethan Chumley from Microsoft. Ethan Chumley is a senior security strategist for Microsoft's Democracy Forward program, leading the team's critical institution cybersecurity programs. He works at the intersection of cybersecurity, policy, and technology in support of open and secure elections by working with political campaigns, election organizations, think tanks, NGOs, disinformation researchers, and tech industry partners. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. I recently had a chance to talk with Harry Hursty about some election stuff, and you know, this has always been kind of a pet thing of mine anyway. So I'm really glad to talk to you guys because I've been hearing about your program for a while. And I'm really looking forward to getting into some of those details. So uh, why don't we start? Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how the Microsoft Democracy Forward uh, initiative came to be? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me here. Uh, sure. Of course, my, uh, my background is as a technologist. I got my start. I have an engineering degree, a mechanical and aerospace engineering degree, and came into the tech industry by way of an engineering company, and then into Microsoft uh, to do cloud security more generally. So I have a cloud security background uh, as, a, as an enterprise IT practitioner, and I have been on the Democracy Forward team or some iteration 
of that team for about six years now. Hmm. And the program came to be, it used to have a different name. It was called the uh, the Defending Democracy Team, Mm -hmm. uh, which was created after some of the cyber interference that we saw and that the world collectively saw during the 2016 election cycle. Yeah. And then post-2016 into into 2017, we began to look and see what could we do as Microsoft, what could the company do, and where were we uniquely positioned to explore technical solutions that can help preserve, protect these electoral processes to identify and remediate uh, cyber threats to these democratic processes, to these political campaigns and these elections organizations. And we started to do this through various means, looking at political campaigns to protect them from Mm -hmm. hack and leak operations, to Mm -hmm. increase their cyber resilience. We expanded that work into elections organizations and election entities to look at both the physical hardware and software of elections infrastructure, as well as the organizations running them, elections management bodies, to really see what we could do to increase their capabilities and help them with some of the challenges they were facing. Yeah, yeah. And all of this with the background of disinformation and misinformation starting to grow. So our team also continues to work on disinformation campaigns, uh, countering state propaganda, all of this through the lens of the asymmetric threats that we were seeing from state-sponsored actors, typically foreign governments or very large coordinated entities, going after relatively small and very high-risk organizations that didn't necessarily have the ability to protect themselves, at least not as thoroughly as we could. So we sought to see what we could do to weigh... Uh, to, to counterbalance that a little bit, right? And where could Microsoft lend its unique security expertise and our security practitioners to help, for example, a political campaign that may just be a small scrappy startup group of, of, of individuals. Mm-hmm. As uh, many of them tend facing. to be, yeah. Yes, yes, they, as they often are. So the Democracy Forward team came as, as an iteration of the Defending Democracy team as a recognition that some of that work needed to expand a little bit. So we were not only looking at just being on the back foot to protect these organizations and, and act in sort of a reactive security capability, but what could we do to be a little bit more forward-leaning too? Right? How could we look to see what could be done to help protect these critical organizations while also expanding some of that work to include the broader democracy advocacy and uh, democratic ecosystems like NGOs and human rights organizations, mm. how can we protect nonprofits and think tanks? And, uh, you know, leaning on the disinformation angle, we also look to protect and work with journalism and the information ecosystem. How can we help and support healthy journalism, strong media literacy amongst consumers of journalism and information online mm. while, while looking at the companies, coordinating and looking at the company's point of view on uh, civic issues? Uh, nonpartisan civic issues like uh, access to voting and voter registration, both from an external, uh, externally facing acting as Microsoft, as well as internally facing, uh, helping work with our employee base globally. Sure. Okay. Well, when I talked with Hari, he's a, you know, he's a security uh, researcher and a kind of a hacker. And so we focused a lot about election systems like hardware and software and those kind of things. And honestly, it was pretty scary. And so before we're going to talk a little bit about some of your initiatives in that regard, but before we get to those details, I just got to ask. uh, So, you know, as you're, as you're talking to your friends, and obviously in the United States right now in particular, there's a lot of worry about the integrity of our election systems, you know, founded in fact or not, it's there. And so, 
you know, inevitably when you're hanging out with friends at the bar, you're, you know, maybe the family over at Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, you know, you, I'm sure in your position, you get this question. So when they say, you know, Ethan, how, how secure are our elections really? Were we hacked? Was it rigged? What do you, what do you tell them? That's <laughs> a great question. And you're, you're spot on with the Thanksgiving conversation. <laughs> you know, I, the short answer there is that our elections really were very secure. And, and I talk about specifically the U.S. 2020 elections here. I know that a lot of the work and perhaps some of your listeners are global, but looking specifically at the 2020 U.S. elections, they really were a very secure election. You saw statements from people in positions of authority. Uh, you then director of CISA, Chris Krebs, mm -hmm. he issued a joint statement saying that the 2020 elections were uh, some of the most secure that had ever been conducted. Mm -hmm. There was a group of uh, scientific and academic researchers that that really focus on, on the election security space that said they had seen no credible threats and no credible evidence that, that any election systems were exploited or changed. So I think that there might be many who distrust the results of those elections. Mm. And we need to do a lot of work, we as a collective organization across the public and private sector, to really boost that trust uh, and that trust in democracy and the democratic process and that the systems work the way that they did. But from a security perspective, both from where I sit and as well of the, the opinions of many that I trust in this space, uh, said that this was really a successful, a fair, and an accurate election uh, with a, a record number of votes cast, even mm -hmm. amidst all of the uncertainty that came during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, with a lot of the changing processes and procedures that came into place. Uh, it was it was really impressive that we saw the, the voter turnout that we did. It was, it was great. Yeah, so so the, the weird paradox there seems to be that, and Hari and I talked about this too, is that it is... There are security issues with our systems. I mean, there are it, it, at least potential, right? And that, and that I think was the the differentiation sure. that we need, we needed to make is just because something is, could be hacked doesn't mean it was. Uh, and I think that that is is how you <laughs> how you square that circle. But you know, so one of the things that you guys have been working on, and we're going to talk about here, I think mostly today, is a particular part of your program called Election Guard. Sure. And so, given that you just said it was on the most secure elections <laughs> there is, what problem is this really trying to solve? Sure. Yeah. So Microsoft uh, and my team specifically created the Election Guard toolkit. Uh, we released it a few years ago and continue to iterate on it uh, today. The, uh, the core principle or the core issue that it's trying to solve is getting at this trust, this voter trust in elections, hmm. so that voters can trust that their votes were recorded and count in the way that they intended them to, with no changes or modifications along the way. And it's one thing for an election official to be able to just say that all of this took place and mm -hmm. that the procedure was followed accurately and that there was no evidence. But we wanted to see what we could go and do to dig a little bit deeper into some of those assertions and really provide that extra level of verifiability and confidence for voters. So uh, Election Guard at its core, it is a software development kit. It is an open source piece of software that promotes a principle in elections called end-to-end -end verifiability. End-to-end mm. -end verifiability, uh, well, I might abbreviate E to EV because it's a mouthful, <laughs> uh, is, is sometimes is categorized into having three major principles. The first one is that voters should be able to ensure that their vote was recorded the way that they intended it for it to be recorded, mm -hmm. that it was uh, you know, cast as, as they intended. Mm -hmm. 
the other side of that is at the end of the election, anyone should be able to audit the results of the election to ensure that all of the votes were tallied correctly and that everybody's vote was included in that tally. Mm-hmm. And then the third principle here, which is a, a little bit unique and, and frankly what makes elections so unique from a cybersecurity challenge and, and from a cybersecurity point of view, is that no one person should be able to reveal the contents of anyone mm-hmm. else's vote, mm-hmm. including sometimes that voter themselves after they leave right. uh, the polling place for issues of coercion or vote buying. We don't want at any point your own vote to become public. Right. So those three things together are sort of the, the cornerstone of what makes end-to-end verifiability. Election Guard is that software, is a software development kit that includes a lot of novel cryptographic ideas, uh, mathematical ideas, and some of the underlying infrastructure that helps voting machine vendors that want to implement E2EV be able to do that. And and verifiability is is a difficult concept and something that's even probably more difficult to implement correctly. Mm. And we are hoping that with Election Guard, we can take a lot of that complexity and a lot of that onus, especially on some of the, the areas where Microsoft can shine, which is in you know, deep research and cryptographic skills and development talent, and that we can put a lot of that work into the Election Guard SDK so that these voting machine manufacturers or anyone that's making a voting system can pick it up and with with relatively light lift, implement those end and verifiable principles uh, into their election. That sounds really cool. And I would def- definitely want to get into a, a few of those details on how exactly that works in a second. But before I do, I want to, I want to ask sure. uh, kind of like some marketing questions, like some uh, some <laughs> business questions around this, because I, you know, yeah. I, you know, I always want to follow the money. I want to make sure this makes sense, right? So, you know, if this is open source, free and open source software, how is this funded exactly? And, you know, if it's free, Microsoft makes money in a lot of other ways. So is this truly just always going to be a free thing? Do you plan to monetize this sometime down the line? Maybe tech support costs money? What, what, is, the, what is the business model around this? Or is it just purely altruistic? Yeah, the, the, there really isn't much of a business model around Election Guard specifically. I mean, it really is, to, to use your words, an altruistic involvement. Election Guard is part of the defending, excuse me, the Democracy Forward team. Most or all of our work is sort of rooted in Microsoft's belief that we have a responsibility as a large tech company to leverage our strengths, to bring our resources to bear, be it technology or industry partnerships or skills that we have within the company to really help support the democracies of the world. A healthy democracy is good for everyone. And if there's something that we can do to really promote and help to boost that the health of that democracy, we feel that it's in part our responsibility to do so. The Democracy Forward team is part of Microsoft's tech and corporate responsibility division, uh, where there are a number of sort of altruistic and, and social good programs that don't accrue to any direct business hmm. value, that don't accrue to any direct revenue that we're collecting. The Election Guard SDK is open source. It's on GitHub. It's released uh, with something called the MIT Open Source License, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which for those uh, unfamiliar is a software license that says that pretty much anyone is free to use our software for any purpose, and they don't have to give any credit or money back to us for that. Mm. That is out there in the public space under that license today, and we have no intent to change that, and no real intent to sell that, uh, nor, nor are we 
in the business of you know making hardware that needs to be supported long term in order especially hardware to run this you know just to dig even a little bit deeper on that uh, we've gone through great lengths and great pains to make sure that the election guard software could run on any platform that it doesn't have to run even on a windows device hmm. linux is a first party player for election guard uh, we've the choices of development languages and platforms that we've used don't rely on any proprietary or paid Microsoft software uh, in order to use the Election Guard SDK. All right. So let's talk about the rest of the market. I mean, there are several incumbent election system vendors out there, and they've changed names over the years for, for various reasons. Uh, some of them sure. might be might be PR reasons. But uh, anyway, so, you know, we've ESNS and uh, some of these others that we've heard about, Diebold, uh, Dominion certainly has been in the news a lot. Mm-hmm. But so as my, we haven't really talked, I guess, about hardware, but is Microsoft you know, competing with these guys? Are you collaborating with them? Uh, do you have any direct relationships with them? How, what, how does all that work? Are they, are they free to just pick up your stuff and go with it? Have any of them done so? Yeah. So we are absolutely trying to collaborate with the existing voting machine vendor market wherever we can. We are not trying to compete. We're trying to be collaborative and, and really go to market with these customers to help put Election Guard into their systems that they make and sell. We have had some pretty good uh, uptake already, most notably Heart Inner Civic, which is the third largest election vendor in the United States, has agreed to and we have partnered on an election guard pilot uh, that we hope to announce in, in the near future, where Heart is going to take the election guard SDK and actually roll it into their flagship product line, which is called the Heart Verity system, where they will take their scanners, their heart scanners, and implement election guard on those scanners so that they can take our SDK and the voters that vote on those those pieces of heart equipment will have all of the benefits of that voter verifiable paper audit trail uh, that is produced through the Verity system, but then they will get the added additional benefit of knowing that their votes are secured and encrypted and, and auditable through the election guard system as well. We've really taken Hart's lead on this, who approached us, who, you know, Hart was really interested in finding an innovative way to get to the root of what you were talking about earlier, which is that that issue with voter confidence in election results right now, and that issue with voter trust, sometimes with the election vendors themselves, which is often uh, uh, needlessly placed on them, unfortunately, they were trying to find ways to, to, to boost that. So they looked to Election Guard and, and our team, and we're working really closely with them on this pilot project and this initial rollout where we're providing support and guidance on how to properly use the Election Guard SDK. And then they are sort of pivoting and in turn trying to implement that into their development processes so that there can be a real pilot election, uh, hopefully sometime next year, where people are voting on HART equipment that's running the Election Guard SDK. And, you know, HART is not the only vendor that we've worked with on this. There's a, a nonprofit voting vendor called Voting Works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's CEO Benedita. We worked really closely with Voting Works and Ben on a, on a previous election guard pilot. Uh, and it, it was great to work with them and, and any of the other incumbent or non-incumbent, right? Any new newcomer to the space as well, we welcome the reach out. We'd love to hear from if there are any Anyone that works in the voting industry that's interested in implementing election guard or end to end verifiability, we we welcome the conversation. So, and you mentioned, I, I think, or alluded to one of the key 
aspects to this, and I think that's transparency, and that's and that's why you've got open source software so that anybody can look at this. One thing that might concern me is once this uh, is taken by these other companies and integrated, do we lose that transparency? I mean, we we they're free to modify your code anyway and they way they see fit. Is I don't know if you could do this with licensing. Licensing, I guess you could with the right <laughs> license, and I don't think you picked it. But is there a way that you could? achieve more transparency. Like if, if Hart or one of these other companies takes your software and uses it, I then actually want to be able to see what they did with it. Is that going to be possible or does it instantly become proprietary once they start integrating it? I think ultimately that's a question to each vendor that chooses to implement our software, whether or not they choose to make the implementation details and the, the underlying code you know, open or closed or, or open to, to scrutiny or not. But I think that one of the really important things about election guard and, and verifiability generally is that they don't necessarily need to make their underlying source open source. One of the key things with end and verifiable elections and specifically election guard is that there are a lot of public artifacts that are released at the end of an election, more public data than we are used to right now. Mm. Uh, part of the toolkit is uh, encrypts votes and does calculations and works with that data in a way that the encrypted data without being decrypted and made public can still be useful for third-party mm -hmm. researchers to audit those artifacts after the election is over. So regardless of the uh, open or closedness of the underlying system that is implementing election guard, the artifacts and the data, sort of the data trail, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. put that in quotes, that is created after the election is over can be looked at and that data can be audited and verified. So it really sort of shifts the model. When we, when we think about audits today and the way that elections are, are audited, you're usually auditing the processes and the systems that conducted the election. Election Guard flips that a little bit so that we audit the results. Mm. We audit the, art of the data artifacts that were created on the other side. And if we have that end-to-end -end verifiability, mm where the voter can do their verification upfront during the casting process. And anyone can audit those data artifacts at the end of the election to ensure that the tally was done properly. Voters can, after they vote, they will often receive a, think of it like a piece of paper with a verification or a confirmation code on it. An analogy that's always stuck really well with me is equivalent to like a shipping verification code mm. or a, a postal Tracking verification number, yeah. code where... Yeah, where you don't get to see what was inside the package at the end, but you can confirm that your package got to where it needed mm. to get to at the end and that it, the voter can say, yes, my ballot was included. The contents of my ballot was included in the, in the final tally. One of those primary differences, you know, where this analogy breaks down a little bit is that with Election Guard, that verification code is sort of cryptographically and mathematically tied to the result and a lot of those those artifacts at the end of the election that uh, the public gets to scrutinize. So we increase the auditability across the process, regardless of the transparency of the system that's actually doing the implementation. Well, and I think that is actually crucial. And I'm really glad you brought that up because it, it, this all goes to what I'm kind of lumping under the umbrella of a zero trust mentality that we are yep. starting to adopt uh, in the industry, which is long overdue. But it's, and I think uh, maybe Hari referred to it as like software independence or something. There's some other term mm -hmm. he used, but 
basically where you don't have to trust the hardware. You don't have, if you, if you implement the system properly and it's not easy and, and that's why we need smart guys like you doing this. But if you implement it properly, you can kind of hand wave some of the other parts. Like it doesn't matter if we do our jobs, right. We'll still be able to figure this out at the end. And it doesn't matter if the heart, if the, the hardware that it was running on may have been compromised. We'll, we'll have indicators of that we'll, we'll know. And, you know, I, so that's awesome. That is, that is really cool. And it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, we really strive for that idea of software independence is the term uh, where you can trust the results of the outcome without needing to trust the software, the hardware, or the individuals responsible for conducting the election. Uh, yeah. no, no disrespect meant to anyone that <laughs> makes that hot hardware, hardware, software, or, or conducts elections, but the idea is that the voters get to trust the underlying uh, you know, foundational components of the election themselves. Well, and I, and I think it goes beyond that. I think I think we need to get beyond this notion of uh, you know no offense because but because there we should we should be looking at this like I want you to trust this so I want you to by default not assume that I'm trustworthy. I want you know I, I don't want you to have to assume that right. I mean exactly. So it's you know you want to en- engineer yourself away from that problem, and so you know so it doesn't come down to someone's word against another. There's no feelings involved. It's just it is what it is, and, it, and it's and it's trustworthy. Precisely. I would say, and just one more more thing to that sort of level of transparency too, one of the things we were really excited to to launch uh, about 18 months ago with Election Guard is a bug bounty program, specifically mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. our open source software. Bug bounty programs are, have become relatively common in the software and hardware industry where security researchers can actually get paid for finding vulnerabilities in the software and responsibly reporting them back to the maker of the software, the hardware. So in our case, you know, responsible disclosure of vulnerabilities in the underlying hardware that may allow for unintended results from, you know, votes being changed to mm-hmm. verification codes not resolving, uh, depending of, uh, of that severity. Finders can get up to tens of thousands of dollars from Microsoft for reporting that responsibly to us so that we can have a chance to assess, remediate, and responsibly roll out any bug fixes that may that may need to be there. Of course, we've worked extremely hard and we've worked with both internally and with external researchers to make sh- sure that the code is as bug-free as we can we can make it, but nothing is perfect and no system right. is perfect. So the bug bounty exists to engage that research community and let them take a look at what's happening under the under the hood here. Well, just you know, as a software developer, that was something I, a mantra I always had is you don't want to grade your own homework. I mean, you want if if, if, you, <laughs> right. if you if you write the test for your own software, you're already building in your own assumptions. You're missing the blind spots you, you already have by default. So it's good to have someone else do it. So yeah, absolutely. So you know, so as a as a voter or as an elect, election official, as I'm going through my day on on the day of, uh, how do I interact with your system? Where do, where would I be seeing Microsoft Election Guard? Sure. So the biggest trial that we've run to date for Election Guard was in February 2020, where we, unbeknownst to us, squeaked it in right before uh, the pandemic began. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in February 2020, in the town of Fulton, Wisconsin, which is a, uh, a small community in southern Wisconsin, we worked with the jurisdiction in Fulton to implement Election Guard in partnership with Voting Works, who provided the hardware and the actual uh, voting equipment to the town of Fulton for a, a local municipal election that we ran there. Or that excuse me, that the election officials ran there, that Voting Works and, and Microsoft were fortunate to be able to come in and, and conduct this pilot. And, you know, I think that a, any pilot of any new election technology, specifically something complex and new like Election Guard, 
requires at the very beginning buy-in and willingness and eagerness to innovate from both the state elections department and the local elections department. Mm -hmm. As I think you've maybe teased out in some of your other interviews, there is no one electoral organization in the United States. There are many at many different levels Mm -hmm. of uh, uh, jurisdiction from state to county, sometimes down to city level. And what we found in Fulton was an engaged in an excitement to innovate and try something new, of course, realizing that it was still a, a very serious matter and that, that you know steps needed to be taken uh, in order to make sure the process happened as securely and as regimented as, as elections require. So it, it starts there. And then on election day, once uh, uh, you know we have the willingness and, and it's really working with the voting machine partner, the voting system partner, in this case, uh, Voting Works, to look at their existing processes and see where does Election Guard make sense to fit in here? Where in the process, both technically in terms of implementation details, but also in terms of voter flow, there are new steps for voters when mm-hmm. you implement and, and verifiability. They all of a sudden get a second piece of paper, mm-hmm. which is their, their confirmation code that they need to know that goes home with them. It doesn't get cast in the ballot box. Mm -hmm. Uh, And finding the right time and the right way to implement those procedures so that someone that may have no idea that they're about to pilot a new election technology can come in and quickly understand what's happening uh, and uh, allow the the flow to continue as it should on election day. Uh, There are uh, already enough issues with uh, people bandwidth, if you will, uh, the speed at which people move through a polling place, implementing Mm. new procedures we want to make sure is seamless. So there's a significant amount of almost UX research that goes into user experience research that goes into uh, adding these new things. And and frankly, to me as a technologist, that was adding in those new levels of the human component and the procedural components was something that was really eye-opening to me at the, the depths at which we had to do that. Once we figured out sort of the flow and implemented our technology into the, you know, our, our partner system, it's deploying their system. And by and large, with the exception of that new piece of paper, we hope that the actual voting on voting day looks extremely similar to what they're used to. If a voter is used to picking up a piece of paper and filling in bubbles with a pencil and sliding that into a scanner, hopefully they get to continue to do that as, as they were. There's, Mm. Uh, election guard should be an additive layer of security without getting in the way mm. of the voting process, without adding complication to that voting process. So the, the the voter themselves, the biggest difference for them is that they get to walk away with something. They get to walk away with a confirmation code. And at the end of the day, at the end of the election, there's a website that they can go to to check. They can type in their confirmation and see that their ballot was included as, as part of the final tally. That's really cool. Yeah. And then they can also either themselves or watchdog organizations or other organizations that might be interested in looking at all of the election results can go to that same portal to, to collect all of the election artifacts. So I think that's sort of the voter's perspective from the perspective of the election official and how are they engaged with mm-hmm. Election Guard and how are they you know, looking at our processes. I think really for them and it's my hope at least that one of the biggest ways it impacts them is that the voters get to go home and like you were saying, do their own homework and do their own research that their vote was counted. So instead of the election officials phone ringing the next day with people with 
questions or concerns, was my vote counted? You know, what happened here? It's that people get to do that themselves at home and leave the election administrators to continue mm-hmm. to administer and run elections. The election is very much not over at 8.01 <laughs> right, p.m. Right. On, on election day. The election official is still very busy making sure that the official results match the preliminary results and running through any, any sorts of audits that might need to take place. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that's one significant way that it can you know, boost trust in the public and thereby help the election administrator. And then there are some procedural steps that the election administrator will, will go through on election day, for example, to do things like vote tallying. Hmm. that are maybe slightly different on election guard. But again, we hope to either make it as, as seamless of a, pro- of a process as possible or something that can run smoothly in parallel because of those demands on the election officials time, particularly on in the sort of 48 hours before and after an election. One of the key elements to, that we need going forward that uh, we have not really implemented broadly is these things called risk limiting audits. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, your system helps th- enable that in some interesting ways. So tell us a little bit about you know, what a risk limiting audit is and how election guard makes them easier to run. Yeah, a risk limiting audit is a statistical audit that was in large part developed by Philip Stark, uh, an academic who came up with a a method of conducting audits whereby you have to look at what is typically a much smaller percentage of the actual ballots as confirmation to ensure that the results of the election sort of statistically match the sample ballots that you pulled uh, within a, a, you know, a, a level of confidence that an election administrator is comfortable with. They are particularly great where the margins are a, a, a little bit wider, right? If it's not a one ballot race, but uh, maybe a few percentage points, uh, there are scenarios where municipalities of hundreds of thousands of people mm. uh, may be able to undergo a risk limiting audit by pulling only a few hundred ballots and auditing mm. those. It is a, a great audit, a fully fully supportive of, of risk limiting audits, fully supportive uh, of, of most types of audits, but I think that risk limiting audits are, are, are particularly great. Just sort of the importance of auditing after the fact can't be overstated because you have to know if, if something went awry in your process. How does election guard enable and sort of enhance risk limiting audits? I think sort of principally through privacy and security. Uh, what do I mean by that? It is common in a risk limiting audit, especially ones that might be conducted in more of a virtual hybrid environment as we're seeing now, hmm. where election officials will make many, sometimes all of the scanned copies of paper ballots available online. And, hmm. and then they will say which ones they are going to go pull for the risk limiting audits, and they will select and, and compare those ballot images to the whole set in order to conduct their their election. Although good for transparency all up, it opens up a giant security issue mm. where revealing the contents of more ballots than you need to to conduct an audit can compromise the privacy of the people whose ballots mm. were never opened. You may have a scenario, especially in a race where there might be many candidates, where someone may be coerced into voting a particular way, and that can sometimes be revealed on or by through stray marks on a piece of paper, for example, mm. that, that 
that privacy can be compromised when we make too many ballot images available. Election Guard is unique in that it encrypts every ballot. So you can still release a full set of encrypted ballots to the public without compromising any of that privacy. And then during the course of the audit, uh, you can pull select ballots from the set and only decrypt and only show the ballots that are needed in order to conduct the audit, hmm. whereby somebody then gets to verify the accuracy and the integrity of the entire ballot set without compromising the privacy of the majority of voters uh, while only sort of opening and revealing the cast vote records of hmm. the particular ballots that were needed to be audited during the risk limiting audit. And we have actually seen Election Guard used in this capacity to, to conduct a, a risk limiting audit in, in California, where somebody did exactly this, which was take a, a bulk set of ballots and encrypt them with Election Guard. And then, they, you know, you get the added benefit of being able to run a secondary tally using Election Guard tally mechanism. But uh, you can also use that as a the back end for a risk limiting audit, which can really speed the process mm. along in, in, in a virtual world. It's great to have good custody of paper ballots and know where all of these paper ballots are in order to, to count and audit them, which is was super important. But once those pieces of paper get in uh, to the hundreds of thousands or millions, yeah, just the amount of time it takes to find a piece of paper uh, can, right. can significantly increase and increase the length of time for an audit, which is not inherently a bad thing, but nice to be able to, to do that digitally and get yet another confirmation and be able to do it much quicker. So far, we've talked basically about in-person voting. This is where someone comes into the voting booth uh, or yeah. into the voting station and, and goes to a voting booth and you know types on some sort of a ballot marking device or whatever, or bubbles it in by hand, whatever they're doing, and feeds it to a scanner. But obviously, with COVID, there's and there's, whether it's COVID or not, there's a, a significant percentage of voters who never come in because they're either absentee voters, they're military voters overseas, or for whatever reason they need to somehow vote remotely. So, what? First of all, I'm curious to know how secure you think that is and how that compares to in-person voting. And second, does Microsoft's system address this remote voting in any way? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe take those in reverse order. Sure. The Election Guard SDK was designed with multiple modes of voting in mind. So we are doing our best to support the security and the encryption of votes no matter how they are cast. Of course, in-person voting becomes the, the easiest. I put easiest in, in air quotes, but it becomes the easiest to support because the user, the end user, is directly interacting often with both paper and some sort of an electronic component like a scanner hmm. where we can implement and, and map that voter flow much more directly in what is effectively in, in real time. We very much plan to support other methods of voting as well. And the, the technology itself doesn't necessarily limit or dictate that so long as there is some electronic component to the voting process somewhere in this cycle. So in a scenario where someone by hand fills a paper ballot out where it is then hand counted and it's never fed into any sort of electronics, there's not a whole lot we can mm -hmm. do with election guard there because it is software. But in terms of you know, how are we seeing jurisdictions and municipalities expand to other modes of voting? I, I think you, you're spot on where during the COVID pandemic, 
created a lot of really unique challenges for election officials. Right? They needed to address a range of issues from sanitizing voting booths to dealing mm. with how, uh, uh, you know, making space at poll places. And even during a health crisis, they needed something that was innovative and new. And a lot of them turned to mail-in voting. Uh, we didn't see so many turn to, to, to mobile voting. But, it, you know, I think it, the challenge increases in security, in protecting votes that may be cast electronically, right, remotely. I'm talking specifically about mobile voting here, right? I think that mobile voting continues to be a significant security challenge and one that the broader security community is not ready to endorse or support, uh, sort of myself included, that general public voting through things like a mobile phone from home, although it sounds very convenient to mm. do, mm-hmm. And in theory, sounds very nice. The, the practical elements of making sure that those votes are cast securely, cast by the people that are claiming to be mm-hmm. who they are, and being transmitted securely is just too great to do over the internet right now. And I think that will continue to be a challenge, and we need some more innovation there. I think that end-to-end verifiability and election guard is a great step in that right direction. I think that inevitably when some mobile voting solution comes out uh, i think that including some sort of an end and verifiable toolkit including election guard in that end solution will greatly increase both the security but uh, as we've talked about the ability to verify and the ability to trust that that vote was was conducted correctly one way that we've seen you know some sort of baby steps in that direction although not for public elections we have seen organizations with closed private elections take interest in election guard and use for remote voting scenarios. Closed private elections might be something like a board election, a Mm. corporate board election, or a homeowners association, or a parliamentary congressional style vote Mm. where you know who your audience is going to be and you know who is going to be voting. And you can have a little bit more control over the periphery and the actual device that's being voted on. So we, uh, the Election Guard team partnered with a, a partner called Markup, and the, the House Democratic Caucus, the U.S. House, uh, actually voted for their caucus remotely in the middle hmm. of the pandemic using a, a mobile solution uh, that was uh, jointly created uh, for that purpose, where the, the members cast their votes from 50 states, 50 states and, and the territories, remotely in the middle of the pandemic, and they were able to do so securely, which was uh, the first time that the U.S. House has ever conducted any type of official vote uh, off of the floor, hmm. uh, where they were able to do that remotely, and they used Election Guard to cast their votes, hmm. which was fantastic and, and uh, you know, really a lot of good trust and security and transparency there, with the big caveat that those House members that were voting were sent official House iPhones or, mm. or mobile mm. phones, whichever they were, to, to do their voting on. So we had some sort of guarantee of security mm. of the device that they were voting on, mm. and we knew who everybody was. Right. There was some level of login, although the, the votes themselves were cast anonymously. Uh, there was a mm. level of authentication uh, that also took place on a secure device. So we felt comfortable with that level of risk uh, in terms of a mobile vote, mobile voting pilot. But I don't think the the general public voting is is at a place yet where we can, you know, recommend that. 
So speaking of the United States Congress, uh, and I know you're you're not a policy guy, uh, but I'm going to ask you a policy question anyway. Uh, um, there have been a lot of recent policy initiatives. Actually, there's been several over the years, and frankly, a lot of them haven't gone anywhere. Uh, but there, there are plenty up now, especially with all the hubbub over you know, 2016, 2020 elections. And a lot of them have you know things like access and other things built into them that are maybe more political. But a lot of them also have security standards, and they're trying to come up with some broader – a floor of some basics requirements for election systems. First of all, do you know of any of the ones that are currently up that might have some merit? And second, uh, just more broadly, how could the you know federal and state agencies be helping or what, what should or could they be doing to further trust in elections? You know, the federal guidelines and standards are sort of an interesting thing in elections whereby we, we alluded to this a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. there are no federal elections that take place in the U.S. We vote for federal candidates, right? but each state and often each, each county runs their own elections on their own systems with generally their own set of rules. And those municipalities will often look to or take guidance from the EAC, the Election Assistance Commission, which is sort of has has some ability to set standards and make recommendations as it comes to voting for for federal candidates. And any guidance that congressional legislation that's passed or guidance that comes from the EAC, including some level of security standards, I think is maybe generally a good thing with the recognition that there are so many different voting systems that being too prescriptive Mm -hmm. can be dangerous here in that it may not work with the way that an individual municipality votes. And I think there are generally a few sort of some high-level guidance that I think could come from uh, legislation, but very first and foremost on there is sustained election funding. Mm. It is very hard to effectively staff, resource, purchase equipment, all the things you need to do to run a strong cybersecurity program when uh, oftentimes these states receive time-limited emergency funding. Mm. So a drop of a few million dollars every four years with no sustained funding in the middle and no guarantee of that funding again right. four years later, two right. to four years later, just you just cannot staff and uh, resource a security program effectively at the state level without predictable funding and predictable resourcing. So. Uh, you know, I think personally that if there's any recommendation that can come out of the legislation or some top-down funding, making that funding known and sustained with, of course, oversight, but not too terribly many strings attached to exactly how those that funding is implemented, so long as it contributes to the, the general uh, security of elections, I think is a good thing, right? We've talked about, and some of these bills include language around voter verifiable paper mm-hmm. audit trails, which is VVPAD is the technical term, or pieces of paper that can be looked at later, <laughs> right. uh, being the non-technical term right. where you know you can achieve that. Uh, paper is another way of achieving that software independence right, uh, yeah. so that that can be counted later. I think there's no, uh, you know, there's general consensus around that being a good thing. Post-election audits become increasingly important Conducting an audit, particularly one that is robust and done correctly, is not free. So that requires resourcing to do, but also not every state or not every municipality requires audits. 
So doing something risk-limiting audits, we talked about those are a fantastic audit. Any sort of formal, methodical, well-known audit technique is, is preferred. Of course, would love to see you know, some guidance around or an acceptance around end-to-end verifiability and just any, anything we can do to really bring organizations closer together and speed along the process of bringing in uh, trusted, you know, respected, responsible voices from nonpartisan agencies and private companies to, to help really shore this gap up, I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. And a funding is crucial. Uh, it's often overlooked and it's it's often behind the scenes and people don't understand how important that is, what role that, that plays in all these things. Um, all right. So as we wrap up here, um, what does roadmap look like for Democracy Forward? Um, not just with Election Guard, but some of the other aspects you talked about earlier. Uh, I think you called it Account Guard. I maybe didn't say it, but I think that's one of the aspects to it in, uh, for campaigns. So, um, you know, Tell us about trials that are coming up. You know, are we? How much more can we expect to see these systems in upcoming state and federal elections? Like, are the midterms, you know, next year? Are we going to see them there? And if so, where? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Our team does certainly more than just election guard, like I sort of alluded to earlier. On where, I, you know, on the election guard side, I guess I'll start there. We hope to see this in use uh, by voters in the next calendar year. Uh, either through pilot elections or real elections. I think stay, stay tuned on that as to real world elections that are occurring using Election Guard. But our technology and our team and the work that Democracy Forward team does will absolutely be prevalent. Uh, you mentioned the midterms, the 2022 midterms, as well as the 2024 elections. You know, We have services like Account Guard, which is our email security solution to help offset those asymmetric threats from nation state actors that are targeting political campaigns and NGOs, think tanks, elections organizations, right? We are, we have millions of customer emails that are being protected by that today. And, uh, you know, we will only continue to grow and, and do that great work. There's an offering called M365 for campaigns, which is an email, an email security program for political campaigns that we hope uh, that as campaigns spin up for both the midterms and the general elections that, that folks are using, we have some hands-on security assistance, both proactive assessments of IT systems, as well as reactive cyber incident response services. Although we hope to never engage those. Uh, right. Inevitably, it's good to have cyber incident response right. on, on the playbook. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Exactly. And you know, in lieu of some of the disinformation research and some of the journalism work that we support, you know, we hope to continue to push and, and drive people towards some of the media literacy quizzes that we have and the media literacy information. Uh, we have a spot the deep fakes quiz to help, you know, drive attention to some growing and emerging threats in uh, manipulated media. Mm. So I think that the team will continue to grow and flourish and our work will be uh, across the ecosystem from the campaigns to the elections to the you know, nonprofit and think tanks communities that, that support them and, and the journalist communities that support them wherever we can be, right? Wherever we're, we're asked to be. And so if, if, I, if I'm curious in this, if I actually did a position where I might want to use these products or, or, or advocate for the use of these products, uh, who, do they, who do you contact? How, if I'm an election official at a, some local level, how do I say, I want to use Election Guard? I want to use, or I, I'm starting a campaign and I want to figure out how to actually use this technology. Who do I contact? What do I do? Yeah, anyone 
that would like more information or is interested in talking to us about Election Guard or any of our programs for Election Guard, feel free to email us. It's electionguard at microsoft.com, one word. For some of our programs generally, the email is protectelections at microsoft.com. Awesome. And real quick, is there anything else as citizens, if for regular old people that might be listening to this, what can we do to support either Democracy Forward in particular or just generally, you know, to help restore trust in our elections? What kind of general advice might you have? I mean, the number one, the number one thing you can do to support our democracy and promote the democratic process is to go vote. Yeah. Uh, yep. Go vote no matter how you vote. Vote early if you need to. We say vote early and vote often, but <laughs> only vote as often as uh, you are legally allowed vote, to. Yeah, <laughs> that's the number one thing you can do. You know, second to that, I think that we didn't touch on it too much during this podcast, but just being aware of facts and being aware mm-hmm. of the information ecosystem that is out there, knowing that there are very much influence operations happening mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis that take place on social media and otherwise. So you know, just to get your news on election related issues from trusted sources, uh, multiple trusted sources, if you need to. Uh, I think that's really something that everyone can do to, it's a small thing everyone can do to benefit themselves every day. And yet absolutely crucial. That is such wise words. Uh, Thank you so much, Ethan, for coming on the show. This was really fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Gary. Appreciate it. Big thanks to Ethan for coming on the show. It's great to, you know, to get people in from some of these really big corporations. It's kind of hard to do sometimes. First of all, figuring out who it is you need to contact. And then with big companies, there tends to be, you know, bureaucracy and things. And turns out I actually know a guy. One of my friends works at Microsoft. It was it was David. It was the guy that came with me to DEF CON, my trusty sidekick for the interview with Jeff Moss. And he works at Microsoft. And so I kind of said, David, you know, see if you can see if you can find me somebody. Uh, in the company that could talk to me about Election Guard. And sure enough, that contact paid off. And we got a great interview. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about it. This is really important stuff. And it's it's really, honestly, to me as a software engineer and somebody who cares about security and election security in particular, I find this really interesting and important. And so I'm so glad that uh, I had a chance to talk to Ethan about that. And again, if you have anything even tangentially to do with your local election systems, check it out. Really, this should be the future of elections. We need to go this route. We need to have open source software. It needs to be transparent. And we need to build the security in from the start. And these guys are doing that. So that hopefully, we, you know, we could build back trust in our election processes and certainly in our election results. It's a really serious issue here in the United States. And I'm sure around the world as well. There's just nothing more fundamental to a democracy than voting. And you can say all you want, but at the end of the day, if the electorate doesn't believe when it's all over that the results are real and valid, even if they are, you know, that perception can really undermine your democracy. So really important work. So glad to have, you know, big, smart, deep pocketed, honestly, companies like Microsoft out there trying to make things better. So he mentioned that the code is on GitHub. If for some reason you're a software engineer, or I guess even if you're not, if you just want to, you're just curious, uh, you could go online right now and go to github.com and you can find the code for Election Guard. I've got a link in the show notes if you just want to go poke around. And it's got some, you know, it's not all just code. There's some information there too you might find interesting. There's also a link to Microsoft's Election Guard website and the, the show notes if you want to go look at it from that angle. 
And I'm sure if you dug in there, you'd see some of the cryptographic stuff that he was talking about. Ethan mentioned sort of kind of obliquely this notion of being able to deal with encrypted data while it's encrypted, like being able to operate on encrypted data without first decrypting it, which is a really amazing technological advancement. It's called homomorphic encryption. And I've probably mentioned it a couple times in the show, but basically, if you do the encryption of the data properly, you can do fundamental mathematical operations on encrypted data without decrypting the data, which is really cool for privacy. So anyway, that's a little bit of a technical aside. Now, I promised a couple interesting, fun things. So first of all, we had Craig Dangeloff on the show uh, not that long ago talking about the Priv app, and I mentioned it in my best and worst gift guides for 2021, which you can either go back and listen to that podcast or find my blog article on that if you're still doing your, if you're still doing your holiday shopping. But this Priv app uh, is really cool, and I've been playing with it, and I need to, I still need to do some more with it, but. Craig had talked to me offline and said, you know, hey, we, you know, we're going to be including some kind of third-party checklists, you know, directly in the app, you know, Washington Post and Ars Technica, I think maybe he said, or Wired Magazine, I forget which. These other, you know, trusted and well-respected websites that often put out articles about how to improve your security and privacy. And they've combed through some of those articles and kind of collected together, you know, checklists based on, you know, those third parties. Like, you know, hey, if you don't, you don't have to trust us. If you trust these other sources, you can get, you know, you can look at them and see what they recommend that you do. And he suggested, you know, hey, we we could do one for your book. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you know, it wouldn't take long at all. And sure enough, they have done it and it is now released. So there's a link in the show notes if you want to check out the Priv app right now. It's uh, Apple only. It's for iOS uh, and iPad, if you want to go that route. And if you happen to have a newer M1 based Mac, you can actually run your iPad apps right on your Mac. So you could actually run, uh, run the app on your Mac too, right now. And, you know, they're going to expand to Android windows and other stuff down the line. But right now, the cool thing is if you go in there right now and go to the gurus tab, and you'll see some of these other checklists from other, other sources, but you'll also find one for me. And it's, it's called Firewalls and Dragons. So it's not only Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, but that's kind of a long, that, that, that was a little bit too long of a, of a name for them to put on their little tile. So they had to take some liberties, which I was totally okay with. And I don't know if they've captured everything. Obviously, my book has got like 170 tips in it. So I don't, I don't know that they've captured all those and they may still be working to add some more, but it's there, uh, which I think is just way too cool. So as you probably know at this point, I have patrons that directly support this podcast and the blog and all the things that I do on Patreon. And and earlier this year, I added Discord benefits. And, and Discord is, you know, a chat app. You know, if you've ever used Slack or Microsoft Teams or Cisco WebEx Teams or any of those kind of, you know, enterprise-oriented uh, you know, chat apps that include video and audio and, you know, other kind of ways to collaborate as a team. Uh, Discord was one that was kind of built around gaming originally, uh, but now it's really just used by anybody and everybody. And Patreon has this thing where you can hook it up to, or you can hook up your, you know, your patrons to a special private Discord server. So anyway, I've been doing that and having a lot of fun chatting with, uh, you know, my patrons there. And so one of my patrons gave me the idea of I should have a little holiday party. And I thought that was really kind of a great idea. So I'm going to try to be put together somewhere toward the end of the month that I'm working out the date with my patrons where, you know, for an hour or two, something like that, we'll have a little kind of wide open video chat session where, 
we can have some drinks and socialize and, you know, you can pick my brain if you want, or we can just talk about whatever. So if you're not already a patron, that might be a fun reason for you to join. Just go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. So one last thing before we go, we're going to get off schedule a little bit. Normally I alternate back and forth between interview and news shows, but next week is going to be another interview, assuming that the interview goes off without a hitch. Uh, supposed to be doing this next week, but I'm going to be talking with someone from the Center for Democracy and Technology. They're about to drop a really interesting report about, you know, how surveillance capitalism, uh, that is, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon and everybody, you know, kind of mining your data in the background and turning around and selling that to the highest bidder or whoever's willing to pay is actually eroding our democratic rights, and particularly in the United States, is basically allowing law enforcement agencies to do an end run around the Fourth Amendment. So anyway, that report is due next week. Uh, I'm going to be getting an embargoed copy of it uh, a little bit early so that I can get my questions together, and I'll be talking from somebody from CDT uh, about that report. And that interview should air uh, one week from today. And then after that, I'll definitely have some news to catch up on, and we'll do a new show. And then it'll be, I'm going to have some sort of a special holiday episode for the week of Christmas. And in that holiday episode, I may be, I think I'm going to announce some sort of a contest, uh, maybe a raffle or some other way for you guys to uh, raffle or something other fun way to probably give away copies of my book and maybe some other goodies. But anyway, uh, that will be coming in the holiday episode of the podcast. And then it's 2022, baby. It's time for the new year. So stay tuned. I will be doing my annual listener survey. I'd love to get some feedback from you guys on you know what you like about the show and maybe what you'd like me to change. So I'll be looking for information about that coming out as well. End of the year brings all sorts of uh, fun and interesting things. Okay, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to get some more reviews for the podcast. I really need some fresh new ones. So if you don't mind going to iTunes and dropping a review, I'd very much appreciate that. And of course, I'd love to get uh, some nice reviews for the book as well on Amazon. And, and again, if I see them out there uh, and I check periodically, I will read them here on the air as my little way of saying thank you. Okay, everybody. Stay safe out there. I know, I know we've got another another damn variant of the uh, the virus going around. Man, it's it's depressing, but we can get through this. Uh, we just got to get vaxxed up. Go get your shots, get your boosters, help other people get theirs. And if we can tamp this thing down, it'll stop mutating and we can get back to normal. All right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.